Gamma Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, sunglasses and self-control. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Kurt Ebesmeyer, who will talk about flotsam metrics. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. I guess it makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Not too bad. It's still a bit windy here, though. Can you shut off the wind? No. <laughs> it's a little bit too large for me. So, Charles, do you ever get out of control? Control? You know me. I'm, like, uh, always in control. It's only the situation that gets out of hand, right? So... I do not choose the situation. The situation chooses me. <laughs> so you have absolute self-control. So, uh, unfortunately, that turns out to be unnatural. you got to release yourself sometimes. Well, you know, I'm always trying to release myself whenever possible. <laughs> so you don't release your hunger then? How much hunger do I need to have? 20,000 calories. <laughs> what, in a day? <laughs> Want me to die of, like, terminal obesity? <laughs> if you run far enough each day, you'll burn it off, right? <laughs> so anyways, there's a cool article that just came out in a recent issue of Psychological Science. One and of my favorite journals? Yeah, I guess you practice your mind tricks on it, huh? <laughs> anyways, this was a study led by psychologist Joshua Ackerman from Yale University, and using food as the object of desire, our practice of resisting ourselves or being polite in front of other people when it comes to food is an unnatural act. So if you look at this from an evolutionary point of view, it's actually human nature to be out of control. So if you eat something, you just continue gorging. And and this idea of the self-control is if you're living in a group type of environment, then it's ideal. Whereas if you're an individual, then you probably want to hoard the food for all yourself. In humans, of course, where you have a division of labor, benefits right. you to share what you get so that you get something from somebody else. Right. And the problem right now is that this kind of self-control in humans is painful because of abundance. There's just so much of what we want and we can just get it without fighting over it that when you're faced with the choice of just taking it or controlling yourself, it just brings conflict to a lot of people. You should either follow your stomach or tend to be polite. So anyways, this is delicious stuff in psychological science. It's not delicious, I'm telling you. <laughs> oh, you've tried it then. Well, if uh, you don't want anybody to recognize you when you're uh, eating your food, uh, perhaps you want to wear some sunglasses. I just do that to look cool, you know. But sometimes you also need to see, right? But seeing's overrated. I mean, everything I eat tastes the same. <laughs> yeah, you notice all these poker players wearing sunglasses inside? Yeah, it is kind of strange, huh? They're not even outdoors. Yeah. <laughs> well, so apparently researchers have been working on lenses that can darken or change color in sunlight and indoors. Some of these lenses, materials that they have so far, they're able to darken in sunlight over the course of several seconds. But researchers have been trying to develop materials that will instantly switch from a clear state to a darkened state. Oh, okay. Is it like polarizing some of the molecules inside to block out light? Uh, well, something like that. Essentially, they have certain types of materials that in one particular state are clear, and then when hit by UV light, changes chemically to become a dark material. Cool. 
Yeah. Researchers over in your neck of the woods, uh, chemical engineer Jiro Abe and colleagues at Aoyama Gakuen University uh, have been working with a pexarylbimidazole. This particular chemical actually transforms from clear to dark when hit by UV light. Oh, cool. But the, the took several seconds, but now they've done a few modifications with it, adding naphthalene, to, mm-hmm. and that accelerates the uh, color change to about 180 milliseconds. Okay, so instant sunblock. And also it changes to clear once the UV's off, so it's pretty rapid and reversible. Pretty fascinating. So uh, I'm still wondering why those poker players wear sunglasses. Probably just so that can't tell when they're falling asleep at the table. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, uh, I've heard that people can actually read other people's intentions by looking at their eyes. Is that really that easy? Uh, I I can certainly see people falling asleep. Poker is a very boring game <laughs> when played correctly, which is sad. When you play a game correctly, it finds it being boring. I don't. I think you can find that in most professions, right? <laughs> it's usually a waiting game. Indeed. Pick your spots. These researchers all pick their spot, and that spot is the Journal of the American Chemical Society. Oh, Jacks. Jacks. Pocket Jacks are actually a good hand. <laughs> I'm not sure if anyone's going to get that one. I know. <laughs> And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Dr. Kurt Ebesmeyer will join us to discuss flotsometrics. So stay tuned. to the Grox Science Show. Well, the world's oceans are an often overlooked part of the environment, yet their importance in controlling events, past, present, and future, should not be underestimated. Well, just how important are the ocean currents and how does one actually go about studying them? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Kurt Ebesmeyer. Dr. Ebesmeyer uh, received his PhD in oceanography from the University of Washington. He is a world-renowned expert on ocean currents and floating objects and host of the radio program Flotsam Hour. His new book, Flotsometrics and the Floating World, co-authored with Eric Sigliano, explores this issue for a general audience. Dr. Ebesmeyer, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Oh, it's a pleasure, Charles. Uh, I'm curious, actually, how did you become interested in this whole subject? Well, I started oceanography in uh, 1966, and I chased around chunks of water slabs. And the ocean is very pointless, and it's not really smooth. It actually consists of thousands, billions and billions of little chunks of water. And so I, I was chasing those around, and I got to icebergs, and I got to oil. And then my mom asked me about 80,000 Nike shoes that fell overboard. And soon entered the world of flotsam and jetsam and discovered that it's virtually unknown what's floating on the ocean. Uh-huh. Maybe you can explain uh, this event that sort of became a transformative thing in your life. Yeah, it was uh, 80,000 shoes fell overboard in five of those big cargo containers. Uh, they fell overboard in the middle of the Pacific, and my friend, who I'd known for a long, long time, had been developing a computer model to forecast the return of salmon. I said, well, maybe, Jim, maybe you could just run it for shoes turn off the swim speed and just think of a salmon as a shoe. And he'd never run his model for very long, a few months at most. And I said, well, you're going to have to run it across half the Pacific Ocean. And he did. And bingo, we got a perfect match between where they started and where they wound up. And so we published it in a peer-reviewed scientific journal. And we thought, well, that'll be the end of that. That's That was pretty fun. And all of a sudden, the media went nuts. And, and I started getting deluged with beachcomber reports of many, many other things. For example, things like rubber ducks? 
Yeah, exactly. And bowling balls and beer tanks and all kinds of body parts and feet and, and, and sneakers and things like that. And so you became sort of the de facto uh, flotsam expert, therefore. Right. It was just the whole world waiting to be discovered. It's just amazing that nobody's really looked at what floats on the ocean. Just, it's unknown. Flotsam is, is so much of it. The way I track ocean currents in the past have been with satellite track buoys, which are very expensive, like $1,000 a piece. Or you put up messages in bottles, or you measure the water itself. All of that is very expensive. So when we had 80,000 Nike shoes, it turned out that that spill of shoes, each shoe was individually numbered. So we actually had 80,000 messages in bottles that were released at one time at one place in the ocean, which was unprecedented. So we took scientific advantage of it and learned a lot about how the ocean, how the currents scatter floating debris around the planet. And so I started to learn that you could really learn a lot about ocean currents by simply tracking trash. (laughs) What was sort of the most uh, surprising thing that you found from the general modeling study? We found that things generally move pretty well. We can model them with the winds with some currents pretty well. And um, so we did pretty well with that. And then um, the toys started coming back after 17 years. They've been coming back every year after they were spilled in 92. And we noticed that the model was doing better and better every year for up to 17 years now. So we noticed that the flotsam was going around in a great circle of currents between the continents. And every time they came by uh, Sitka, we'd get more toys. And we soon discovered that that great gyre of currents, that great circle of currents that goes from Sitka over to Russia and back, took exactly three years. And uh, that was brand new scientific information because nobody had ever tracked a a drifting object around a gyre before. I had hundreds and hundreds of different objects and I rounded them all up and they all gave the same answer of the orbital period of this one gyre of three years and that was brand new scientific information. It's hard to believe it's something so simple, which is sort of like the orbit of the Earth around the sun. It's so simple. But it seems so obvious to me, so I started using beachcombers as the eyes and ears for the floating world and started a newsletter, and now I get deluged with stuff. I just got a report of a hard hat lost in Cook Inlet, washed over to the Soviet Union and back down to San Francisco. Three and a half year drift for a hard hat. (laughs) (laughs) I noticed that you actually have a beachcombers report or network that you uh, sort of monitor for these sorts of things. Yeah, it's a worldwide network of beachcombers, and they report in what they find, and it's pretty, pretty incredible. As I said, it's an unexplored world, so after a while, I've been doing this like 15, 20 years, and you think, well, I've seen everything now, and then never fails. There's always something new every month. <laughs> what was the most surprising thing that come washed up on the shore? I think it probably would be the skeleton found in a survival suit. He'd been drifting a couple of years. So the good news is you got your survival suit on. The bad news is they didn't find you in time. <laughs> <laughs> well, he got somewhere eventually. <laughs> eventually. I think he fell overboard in the Arctic Ocean and wound up in Hawaii in about an 8,000-mile drift. And we still don't know the gentleman's name. What, you know, what sort of the implications of how the currents move in this way? After I did the first two gyres on the, the shoes and the toys, I noticed that the one up toward Alaska, which I call the Aleut gyre, is a three-year orbital period. And then I noticed the one we call turtle gyre, the one that goes around Hawaii from Japan to Washington State and California and back again. That took six years. I started gathering the flotsam into the orbits around 11 of the great gyres that cover 40% of the ocean. And I noticed that there was a harmonic progression from 1.5 to 3 years, and then from 3 to 6 years, 
And I said, wow, that's that's pretty cool. I mean, pretty basic. All 11 gyres fell into those uh, octaves. And so I began to think of the gyres as a musical sequence of octaves. And so I, I, I think of it as music in the ocean, music of the gyres. <laughs> One of the things in your book, you talk about how floating debris might have guided uh, Christopher Columbus and the Vikings to safety. Yeah, well, Christopher Columbus is very interesting. He's one of the, of course, great early navigators, and in his logbook, he notes very carefully things that drift in the ocean. There's a great uh, biography by his son, Ferdinand, so I went through that very carefully, and Ferdinand says one of the things that drew Columbus to America was the drifting objects, the flotsam that was found in the Azores and other things that he saw. And uh, in Columbus's letter to the Queen asking for, you know, the three ships, in that letter he lists flotsam. And uh, pretty amazingly, there was like Native Americans found in kayaks that had washed from Newfoundland and Greenland down to the Azores. That was one. And there were tropical, there was bamboo, big timber bamboo that washed from South America up over to the Azores, along with tropical seeds. And there was also some pine trees that don't grow anywhere else but in the Americas. And to Columbus, he thought they looked like stuff from China, and it looked pretty fresh. So to him, land wasn't far off to the west. And of course, the Queen's mathematician said, you're full of it. China is way over there. (laughs) Of course, they're both right. They didn't realize there was another land mass that neither one knew about. (laughs) (laughs) And and so Vikings came to a similar conclusion as well. Well, the Vikings were forced out of Norway because there just wasn't enough land left. And they got to Iceland. It was virtually unsettled except for a few Irish monks who were soon done away with. And um, Thor commanded that the Vikings put overboard treasured heirlooms, and wherever they beached, that's where they were to build their settlements. Hmm. And something like 30,000 in the next 200 years after about the year 960, 30,000 people settled. And wherever you see a settlement, that's where a treasured heirloom washed ashore. Hmm. And Reykjavik is the place where the first heirloom washed up, and it's the most populated now. One of the interests you draw in the book is that flotsam may have triggered the origins of life. When I was uh, studying the early ocean, I uh, noticed that, well, of course, there was nothing, nothing floating except rock. When a volcano erupts, it spews out pumice, which is much of it floats. And I did some calculations, and I noticed that the early ocean should have been covered with pumice, literally coated like you paint a house. You could paint the ocean with a layer of rock several feet thick. So I, I envisioned an early ocean covered with rock on many, many occasions. What pr- Basically, rock would be as if it were covered with continents. And pumice is nothing more than little glass test tubes. So I, I thought, well, what's, that's the perfect place for the ocean water to get in and then be zapped by lightning. It's a protected environment. So I, my friend Akira Kubo and I wrote an article for, for Nature magazine, and they said, nice idea, but it needs more work. And, of course, without funding, I never have had funding for any of this. Uh, we just kept the idea under wraps, and after Akira died, I put it in a memorial to him, and then um, we put the story in this book, and there it is. We hope it gets some further thought. What do you think would actually take to uh, help verify this sort of idea? Uh, there were some famous scientists who put the, a primordial atmosphere in a chamber and zapped it with lightning and got, got amino acids, as I recall. Mm-hmm. It'd be really nice to put a primordial ocean mm-hmm. covered with rock and then start zapping that with rock and see what actually develops inside the pumice. I don't have that kind of equipment, but 
I think today's technology would allow it to be done pretty well. Yeah, indeed. Hope some scientists out there will take up the challenge. <laughs> yeah, that would be cool. Is uh, global warming sort of affecting the ocean currents? Yeah, it, the way I think about it is that the uh, gyres are just basic, basically circles of currents. That's what they, exactly what they are. Not exactly circles, but kind of kidney shape maybe, or but pretty circular. And they go around um, fairly regularly. But if you add fresh water around the edges, it speeds up their orbital period and makes them go faster. So uh, with global warming, we're basically adding more water around the edges of the 11 gyres, and we're actually destroying three of the gyres in the Arctic Ocean. Those are the ones with the lowest tone at 13 years orbital period. So we're really destroying the fundamental tone of the ocean by um, melting the Arctic, and we're speeding up the other gyres. So it's almost as if I love Beethoven, and I can imagine it'd be horrible to happen, but you're listening to a wonderful uh, rendition of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and all of a sudden a whole section of the orchestra is gone, and the rest of it just sounds out of tune. So um, that's the closest I can think of the ocean and what global warming is doing. Mm-hmm. It's basically altering the heartbeat of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And certainly that would have implications for life in the ocean, too. For sure, there, you know, the sea turtles, they use the gyres to swim around. They basically go one way to lay their eggs on one side of the gyre, and then on the other side they return home to mature. And if you start altering those gyres, the speeds and the sizes, you're going to disrupt pattern that's evolved over millions of years and probably will confuse the turtles no end. In your book, you'll talk about islands or waste patches that also exist in the sea. I call them garbage patches. They're basically, most of them are under the high-pressure cells that sailors avoid because there's no wind inside. But the winds blow around the gyres and basically push flotsam into these areas under the high-pressure cells. And they're sort of like planetary dust bunnies. There's about eight of them on the planet, and they just gather up flotsam. It's a process that's been going on since the beginning of time. If you have a gyre, you're going to have these great garbage patches. But now the thing that's most plentiful inside of them is plastic. Hmm. A long time ago, all you had was pumice and drift seeds. The longest uh, object that could float the longest was a tropical drift seed. We know that they can float at least 35, 34, 35 years now from tank tests we've been conducting for all those years. But now plastic is virtually um, indestructible. We found one piece of plastic that had been out there for for 60 years. Pretty horrific. When one patch that uh, Charlie Moore has been sailing in and documenting, he's found at least six times more plastic than plankton. And this stuff keeps accumulating. Apparently. It seems to be growing, although you're right on the frontier of science, and we desperately need more measurements. And we've really only looked at one garbage patch. That's the one between Hawaii and San Francisco, and that's the one that's been looked at. The others have not been looked at at all. So there's really a lot of work left to be done there. <laughs> enormous. <laughs> it's just enormous. Um, have other scientists started to take up the mantle of this science? Yeah, I think so. People are looking at what birds eat, and mm-hmm. Captain Moore is out there trawling for the plastic, seeing how much is inside the Great Garbage Patch, and he's going to shift over now looking at the Atlantic. Uh, Atlantic Ocean There's a garbage patch that circles around uh, Bermuda, and there's another one over that circles around the Azores. So I think the word's getting out and people are doing what they can. Uh, I always urge sailors that when they go through one, record what they see because any information is going to help at this point. Uh, well, it looks like we're running slightly out of time, but I'm just curious if uh, maybe you have a take-home message for all the people interested in uh, the ocean currents. 
go to the beach, and if you see something that looks traceable, like a lobster pot tag or a message in a bottle, write it down, take a picture uh, as a little bit of admission to the beach. Take a plastic bag, fill it full of plastic you find on the beach, and then recycle it. If everybody buddy does it one bag at a time, we're going to get back a clean ocean. I always urge that. If you want to find out more about sort of Beachcombers Network you've organized. Uh, if you go to www.flotsametrics.com, F-L-O-T-S-A-M-E-T-R-I-C-S, uh, dot com. You'll find uh, there's a newsletter there you can look at, and you can join the network. And basically what people report in, I report back. So we take no funding or any advertising. We want to be politically incorrect, so I, actually, I report what actually is there, even though it might be <laughs> offensive to some industries. That's probably better than the current administration than the last one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dr. Ebersmeyer, I do want to thank you very much. Again, your, your new book is called Flotsometrics and the Floating World. Dr. Ebersmeyer, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, Charles, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And you were just listening to Dr. Kurt Ebesmeyer discussing flotsometrics. This is the Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. I'm sailing away Set an open course for the fun I've got to be free Free to face a life that's ahead of me On board I'm the captain So climb aboard We'll search for tomorrow And every shore And I'll try Oh Lord, I'll try To carry on All right, it's time to play the game. It is the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic flotsam or jetsam. So for the following five items, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, uh, if you found it on the beach, would you characterize it as flotsam or jetsam? And a little reason why. Dr. Ebsmeyer, you ready to play the game? I'm ready to go. Okay, here we go. Uh, item number one, flotsam or jetsam, an iPod. Okay, they, they probably float, so let's see. It doesn't fall in either category. It would be just uh, something that uh, you happen to lose overboard. So uh, flotsam is something lost accidentally overboard. So I guess it would be flotsam. I'd go with flotsam. Okay, very good. <laughs> uh, number two would be a uh, package of Viagra. Package of Viagra. Now that would be lost accidentally overboard, not purposefully as far as I could tell. So that would be flotsam. Okay. <laughs> uh, number three, flotsam or jetsam, an interest-only mortgage. Uh, you're talking about a piece of paper? A piece of paper that had an interest-only mortgage on it. <laughs> now that might be thrown overboard on purpose, which is jettisoned. <laughs> so that is probably going to be jetsam. Because <laughs> it's probably it wouldn't be lost accidentally. It would be thrown overboard on purpose. <laughs> I think a lot of people wanted to get rid of that. <laughs> you're right. Um, all right, uh, item number four, uh, flotsam or jetsam, poker chips. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, so if you're on a ship and you're playing and 
the ship takes a big roll, they go over accidentally. <laughs> I doubt that anybody want to throw those over on purpose. So that it would be uh, flotsam. Right. They might want to throw the opponent's chips overboard. <laughs> well, well, that's a good point. Well, and there might be a big fight. Well, that's a good point. It could be. It could possibly be jetsam, but I think likely it would be accidentally. So I'll go with flotsam. Okay. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, and finally, uh, number five, it would be a copy of the new Hannah Montana movie. Oh, well, people want to keep that. So I think that would have to go over just by accident. So that would be flotsam. Okay, very good. <laughs> uh, all right, well, uh, Dr. Evansmeyer, I want to thank you for sticking around and playing the game. Uh, Charles, it's been a real pleasure. Thank uh, you. All right, thank you. Uh, again, of course, your new book is called Flotsometrics and the Floating World. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Charles. All right, take care. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. All right, and now it's time for this week's question of the week with our very good guest, Forrest. Forrest Gump, how are you doing, Forrest? Good, Dr. Lee. How you doing? Well, you know, I'm, I'm doing really good. You know, I always like to see you run, Forrest. How are you able to run? Well, you know, they say, use your cerveza. Do they say, I didn't, I didn't realize that was common saying there. <laughs> At least on the local. But my mama used to say, you got to use your cerebellum because you your never mama's... know what you're going to get. Your your mom is a very uh, interesting she's the a smart does. lady, you know. Well, she says that the cerebellum controls the motor functions, and that's why I gotta run when I gotta run. All right, well, run, Forrest, run. Thank you, Doctor Lee. Thank you, Forrest. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. Bye.